Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Extremities pulsating with tingling sensations. Hello, welcome to Ideas in Writing. It's a kind of podcast with me, Philip Holden, and it's all about all kinds of writing. Writing you might read in books, online, on the screen, and on the stage. It's supported by Mr. Book's Bookshop in Tunbridge, not surprisingly, if you know me. And uh, we're starting by uploading the interviews and conversations we've had so far at events we've organised in Tunbridge, mostly at the old fire station. Uh, Mr. Book's is an independent bookshop in Tunbridge, the home of inspiring, imaginative and intelligent books, gifts and conversation. You can find it at mrbooks.co.uk and order all kinds of books, new and secondhand, or you can visit them. Have yourself a day out in Tunbridge. And if you do, the old fire station is just around the corner from the bookshop, so it's a good place to take your book and order some nice food and uh, great coffee. So Ideas in Writing is going to be an occasional series. Uh, We've got to work out the logistics of uh, interviews and uh, conversations that we can have with people who are involved in writing, creativity, uh, in the theatre, in publishing, in fiction, all kinds of uh, fields. Uh, So who knows how often we'll make these, but we're starting off by uploading uh, onto SoundCloud and the website uh, some of the events we've had at the uh, fire station. So we start off with a conversation with the phenomenally successful James Graham in conversation with the actor and producer Jack Holden, who also happens to be my son. Uh, So in this hour or so, recorded in front of an audience at the old fire station in way back in October 2017, uh, James talks about his influences, his interest in politics, uh, how he researches and writes and about making Rupert Murdoch a sympathetic character. He answers a few questions from the audience too and talks about uh, Ink, the play that uh, that Jack was in at the time, uh, This House, Labour of Love, Quiz. And of course, uh, this was recorded before they shot Brexit, The Uncivil War, which you may have seen with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. 
So, uh, apologise, the sound isn't the very best here, but um, you know we were just starting out recording these things. We've done our best uh, to clean it up, um, and as we go on, I'm hoping the quality will get a little better. Okay, so thanks for listening, and I'll say a little bit more about uh, Mr. Brooks and what we're going to do in the future at the end of this. So here's James Graham and Jack Holden. Uh, hi everyone, thanks very much for coming. Um, uh, this is James, uh, James Graham, um, and I'm Jack Holden, uh, Master Books, one of the Master Books, <laughs> and uh, I'm in Ink. Uh, which is uh, not even James's latest play. It's a play that's come on since then. It's a play that's about to go on quite soon in Chichester. Um, this man is uh, prolific in his field, um, and I feel very lucky that I've managed to persuade him down here to my hometown to um, to uh, climb inside his mind with you. So I'll give you a little bit of background on James. Um, this is thoroughly researched from uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> James Graham was raised in the Nottinghamshire village of Annesley, although, as we established, Annesley is so small that he changes actually the village he comes from, depending on which interviewer he's talking to. <laughs> so, Annesley. He went to the Ashfield Comprehensive School and then studied at Hull University. His first play, Albert's Boy, was staged at the Finra Theatre in West London in 2005. His next three plays, Eden's Empire, Little Madam, and Sons of York, also premiered at Finra, where he had become writer-in-residence. Tory Boys came next at the Soho Theatre, followed by SuddenLossOfDignity.com at Bush. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about that one later, I think. Next up was A History of Falling Things at Theatre Cluid. The Whiskey Taster, back at the Bush. The Man at the Finborough, Bassett for NT Connections, and 66 books at the Bush. Then finally we get to the big stuff. <laughs> this house. James's riotously funny play set in Labour and Tory Whips offices between 1974 and 1979. Premiered at the National Theatre's Cottesloe in 2012, before moving to the Olivier, and then to the West End's Garrick Theatre. This house was nominated for Best New Play in both the Evening Standard Awards and the Olivier Awards. Meanwhile, James was busy penning Privacy, the Donnell, The Angry Brigade for Theatre Royal Plymouth, and the book for the stage version of Finding Neverland, with songs by all of our favourite, Gary Barlow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're only in 2014! <laughs> in 2015, James's play The Vote, Dramatising the quintessentially British experience of the polling station was performed by Donmar on election night and beamed live to homes across the country, finishing just as real polling stations closed. Monster Raving Looney premiered at Plymouth in 2016, which brings us to this year. Inc., the play I'm in, premiered at the Almeida and is now at the Duke of York's Theatre. The Labour of Love is literally a few doors down at the Noel Coward Theatre. And Quiz, the story of the infamous Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Cheater, or not, Major Charles Ingram, opens soon in Chichester. And now I need to lie down. I'm insane. Uh, and I haven't even mentioned James's work on television. Coalition for Channel 4, and his recently announced film for BBC Films, Gypsy Boy, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs>
we've got, a, we've got a good audience. <laughs> um, James won't mind me telling you, because I cleared it with him earlier, that he's 35. He's only 35 years old. His CV is incredible for someone so young. And to boot, he's one of the nicest people in theatre. <laughs> With so much already achieved, uh, including this visit to Tunbridge, I mean, I'm sort of ahead of all of I think it's time we ask, in James's own words, uh, referenced in ink, the five W's who, what, where, when, and why. So, we'll start with number one who? James, I've just read the Wikipedia entry about you, but who is James Graham? <laughs> <laughs> Good start, easy. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, what do you literally want me to say to that? Uh, well, I feel so. like James Graham now is is a name. It's like is is um, you know, it's like a play by James Graham is is a big kind of. If you're a producer, that's a big that's something for your show. So I mean, tell us who the real you is. Like, tell us kind of. <laughs> you know, tell us your sad, dark secrets. <laughs> what keeps me awake at night? Um, well, I, I just want to say thank you, obviously, for coming to this. I feel very flattered that people wanted to turn up, and I think it's amazing that Helen and the family are doing this, and I wish them well. Um, uh, I, do, I mean, I, I didn't really, like, probably like a lot of people, I didn't really have a huge amount of um, necessarily theatre in my life when I grew up. I, I, I was lucky enough to have parents that encouraged my. Um, my creativity from a young age, they gave me a typewriter when I was three years old and I would churn out really bad short stories and make my family read them and I would... Uh, but my, I think my access point to, to drama, to art, was always the television drama, which is why it's something that, that, that's something I really want to pursue. But I grew up in a, in a, in a mining town when um, uh, dramas like Alvina's Own Pet and Boys from the Black stuff and older stuff like Kraken, the, the Granada Studios things, they just really... Um, Captivated me. I don't I have no idea why. Um, and I guess uh, if I was going to psychoanalyze myself, which is to do, I was definitely uh, an introverted, uh, kind of shy kid, and I found a lot of um, uh, safety in in spending time in my own head and um, imagining and projecting scenarios and and and, and exchanges with fictional characters as, as a way of. I think uh, dealing with some of the things I either found fun or I found difficult, um, and it's a strange being a playwright in particular. It is a strange mix of, of public and private. You have to spend an, an incredible amount of time on your own, and then without uh, a moment's notice, you suddenly have to be very public like this. Um, and there are moments when um, there are joyful moments. Actually, I really like it when you when you might not write, uh, you might not see anyone or speak to anyone for. Uh, days and then someone will call you and you go to speak and your voice doesn't come out because you, you realise oh, I haven't actually said anything for a couple of days. Um, so it's it's a discombobulating mix, but it's one that I, I think I it's one that I enjoy. I enjoy um, and that's also the joy of being a playwright. You can be a screenwriter and, a, and a, a novelist and a TV writer and maintain a level of privacy in your works. It's quite an isolating process, um, including a film, uh, which we can talk about later if you're interested. But when you're when you're writing a play, you have to be thrust into a room for four or five weeks with a company of actors like yourself, and you have to you have to batter into shape and wield your beast. It's a very public collaboration. Sometimes, <laughs> as you know, sometimes the actors as well. But it's, um, 
so I enjoy I enjoy that, and without uh, without theatre, I imagine I'd be a much uh, I would have fallen back on I think what I think is my factory setting, which is to be quite um, private. And uh, in Annersley or wherever you choose to come from, and your high school, and I mean, what was your provision for drama like when you were at school? I was furiously lucky, so it was the biggest um, comprehensive school in the country in terms of overpopulation in the very industrial rundown part of Nottinghamshire during a very difficult time. Um, but I was so privileged, I was so privileged because I had a, a drama teacher who just believed that um, kids from these kinds of families should do plays and should be given texts um, and be thrown into school shows. So I had a drama teacher, Mr Humphreys, uh, who um, forced me onto the stage, Mrs. Robinson, and uh, it was, uh, it, it unlocked something. I felt very safe there and I loved it. So um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, was a, it, was a, it was a rough, tough school, but I, was, I wouldn't have changed a single thing. I was mm. very, very lucky. And that brings me to what? What drew you to writing for the stage? I mean, was it that those teachers pushed you onto the stage, like you said, and you said you've been writing from a very young age, so what made, when did you start, you know, making characters speak and uh, I always did because I didn't really have theatre I always wrote from about three or four years old um, but there's mainly prose novels uh, but when I discovered school plays I started to try and write scripts and texts but the first time I showed anyone I wrote was probably at university when I was about 18 19 um, the joy of going to university and doing drama I was the first time I family to go to university and the joy of doing Drama is that you get to pick your um, niche. You could be a director or an actor or a lighting designer. You could build sets. You could do radio. Um, so the, the 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 writing thing uh, again is that mix of public private. I didn't really feel confident going on stage too much, but I felt confident in my room typing out something and giving that something else to do. And when was the last time you acted? I'm acting now. <laughs> 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 Theatre about seven years ago, which we then took on tour. Uh, I don't think I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions, but I don't, um, I don't. I think it's different if you're in a big company show. This was a monologue, and I you, there was not a huge amount I enjoyed about being in Grimsby, no disrespect to Grimsby, but on a Saturday night on your own in your dressing room, waiting to go on stage. And I really felt that feeling of um, being on stage and feeling incredibly lonely on stage, even mm. when you've got 200 people looking at you. And not loving that too much, so I don't. I haven't massively pursued it since. Mm. Um, that brings me to our third W. Where? Where do you write? Like physically, what is your setup? Right at home. I live in London. I live in Kennington, um, which we were discussing earlier is where all the MPs live. So I commit. <laughs> it's a very niche. It's a very niche. Uh, uh, hobby, but I get to spot them going to my local shop. So I have a little place there, and. Um, uh, I write from home, but you can't always dictate where you can write because if you are, especially if you're doing play, um, and there was a crossover point at uh, some point last month when I was doing, where I was in rehearsals for three different shows. <laughs> so you can't always dictate your own day or where you're going to write. So sometimes you find yourself with twelve minutes here, and um, and that probably sounds sounds very. Um, uh, uh, indus in, an industrial way to make work rather than it being walking on the late district musing, but sometimes mm -hmm. you just have to, um, if you find a moment and you just quickly throw some stuff down, 
Um, so often anywhere, but I need to be on my own really, and somewhere quiet, and not really music, not really anything. Just I think I interrupted quite a lot of your writing at the Almeida uh, because we were having to, well, James was having to produce new scenes on a daily basis at one point because some of the elements weren't quite slotting together. James would go up to the green room at the Almeida Theatre to try and write, and I'd sit next to him and sort of chat to him, and then he'd be really short with me, and I'd be like, why is he doing That's rude, isn't it? Yeah, he's writing the play, and I'm supposed to do in a few weeks, I'll probably leave him to it. You literally had nothing to say that afternoon, and I had to generate the content yeah, yeah. to say. Yeah. But, um... Um, and so where do you, I suppose, you know, you're, you're carving out a... Uh, 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 name and a career as as Britain's foremost political playwright. But you didn't start writing about the WIPs offices. Um, so where do you draw your inspiration from? Is it just the politicians you see walking around in Kennington? Or? Um, no. Um, I, I, well, I, uh, it's more history, the politics often. Um, and I know there are, there are, I know there are people Maybe people here who uh, write and consider themselves political writers, and I think there is a difference between political theatre and theatre about politics. And I probably more comfortably sit in the second one. Um, I like, I enjoy writing about the process and the systems that govern us in the institutions that govern us and that have power, whether it be tabloid newspapers or polling stations or Labour MPs' offices in the Midlands. But that isn't necessarily political theatre. There are people who would argue that um, because it isn't outwardly trying to achieve anything, it's not. Uh, I wouldn't call myself an activist playwright. Um, I don't expect people to leave my shows and join the barricades. I wouldn't mind, but I don't. It's not the reason why I'm doing it. So, so discussed whether I'm a political playwright or not. But I know I write about politics. Um, but I just loved history. It was really history that was my access point to all politics. And until I did history A level at school, I'd never heard terms like Marxism or socialism, I, I, I learned those terms by looking at the past and their context within a narrative. And the joy of history to me is it is narrative, it's plot. Um, a character makes a decision based on baggage. Um, there is a consequence to that decision, cause and effect, and the world shifts. Um, and that's just a gift. And I've always, I, I, you know, I didn't invent it. Shakespeare did it, the Greeks did it. And then I think I'm third. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, if you want to, if you want to make sense of your world now, you go back to the past. And the reason often why Shakespeare did that because he want to get his head chopped off. So instead of talking about Elizabeth II, he talk about Richard III. Um, so I, uh, that was always um, a no-brainer to me to make sense of the now by going back to the past, mm. which is I just think uh, by default make it inherently political. Yeah. Um, the next talk you is when. And I thought the best when for this would be when are you going to take a break? <laughs> you, you, I mean, I remember, I think when we met up one time last year, you, I think you sort of implied that you hadn't slept in your own flat for like months because you'd been off, maybe this is the year before, maybe you've been to America and yeah. you were sort of, you were very rarely at home. Yeah. Um, so, when do you schedule free time? What do you do? I mean, do you want to stop for a bit or, you know? I do and I don't. I have good people around me who, um, uh, this, that sounds quite infantilizing, but I, but, I, but I need help sometimes to get dragged away from my work. Um, that's something that I'm conscious of. Uh, and also, 
I, you, if, you, if, you, if you're not living your life and you're not exposed to the world, then you've got nothing to write about. So weirdly, I can justify taking time off, because in my head I think this is going to really help my <laughs> <laughs> um, But no, I do, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not the thing I've nailed um, completely in terms of that balance, but that's, that's a process of it. Yeah, and I feel a bit bad for asking that question, because I feel like that's what a lot of journalism is trying to sort of get out of you at the moment. It's almost like some press sort of resents your success and you and wants to sort of work out when it's all going to fall apart. Do you feel that? I think they definitely want a, uh, to build, a, the, the, the character of the tortured playwright is, is good and fair. Um, I'm not saying I'm not occasionally tortured, but um, uh, yeah, I think um, I just really enjoy what, I do, what I'm doing, and also I suppose I feel, not a responsibility, but as, as someone who enjoys writing the kinds of plays I like writing, um, and feel very lucky at the moment to be able to have, uh, to be able to put that into a Western theatre, and, and then people come, the Chancellor of the Exchequer comes, and the leader of the Labour Party will come, and you only have a very brief window of opportunity, I think, to um, talk about the things that matter to you, to an audience that actually can affect and make a difference. So, um, so it's hard sometimes to go to Centre Parks for a week when, <laughs> when you think the window of time for you to do that is narrow. Yes. Could you write a play about Centre Parks? There is a great play about Centre Parks somewhere. I don't think it's me. You've got to be true to you. you um, and the last of you I have is why. Um, in Ink, you write, that our, you, you write our main character, Larry Lamb, asking Rupert Murdoch. What is it? What does Rupert Murdoch want? Which I always understand you, as us, as all of us, sort of, sort of asking what makes Rupert Murdoch tick. Uh, why does he do what he does? Um, so not to sort of equalise you with Rupert Murdoch. Um, <laughs> as a playwright, do you think it's your job to ask the why or to answer the why? Uh, only to ask. Only ever to ask. Oh, is that true? Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I think you can make offers and suggestions about why things are the way they are, why uh, why the, um, so for example in this house when I play at the National uh, about the 1970s on Parliament, I think you can ask questions about why this very old system with its very strange rituals sometimes um, doesn't allow people to be the best versions of themselves in a system that demands people to be the best versions of themselves without, without pinning it down, without nailing it. Yeah. Um, and I never for a second intended ink to, to ask, to answer the question, why does Rupert Murdoch today do what Rupert Murdoch does? But you can, um, there are little, I think there are clearly little windows into what I think and what I believe, but not that they're oppressive, not that it would deny you the chance to go away from the play with your own version of it. Mm. I definitely don't, I don't think, I think any theatre, any plays, any films that, um, that answers the questions comprehensively that they ask are, are dramatically dead and I think you have to have a, 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 a nuance there, an, an ambiguity that leaves the audience going away, uh, intrigued to continue that journey once mm. the lights go down. So yeah, so this sort of chimes with what you were saying earlier, that you don't write your plays as a piece of activism, um, you write them more as a sort of, I mean there is a nudge in your plays isn't there, I mean you, do, you don't write them completely on the fence. I feel like yeah, there's always there's some kind of nudge in there. Um, 
I think, yeah, I, I reject this idea. Not that anyone's really attacked me for it, but I know that I'd probably consider to be, um, if playwrights were on a spectrum of Labour, and there's Corbyn and there's Blair, uh, no, even better, no, I would be the, I would be the third wave candidate. In <laughs> <laughs> uh, Are you, you heard it here first. No, I definitely don't want that, but I, but I can see why people would think um, that my compromise or my um, tolerance for dissenting opinions means that the plays themselves are toothless or that they lack a, uh, a provocation of an argument. And I, I suppose regardless of the quality of them, which can be debated, I reject that idea. I reject that um, me giving airtime to Rupert Murdoch to, for him to explain why he does what he does and why he believes what he believes is not to be sitting on the fence. You, you, you give characters these viewpoints in the way that the Labour plane mm. had just opened. Different characters express different uh, deeply felt opinions about where they sit on the wing of the Labour Party. And I think it would be possible just about to leave that play not knowing which one of those is mine, and I don't mind that for a second. Mm. There was a, uh, quite a few people we heard leaving the Almeida Theatre having watched Inc. Um, really wanted the play to be a, be a, a hatchet job. They really yeah. wanted you to go for Murdoch. Um, <laughs> why didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, lawyers, uh, no. <laughs> uh, because then you're no better than him, because yeah. that's what he does in his newspapers, and it's black and white or red, and uh, there's no... Ultimately, I find it less entertaining and dramatic, so that's the first, for me, with any play, any piece of art, that's the first port of call. How dramatic is it? How entertaining it is? Which I feel like that's a word we're not meant to use. In yeah, serious well, playwriting circles and entertaining, mm -hmm. and, uh, which people equate entertaining with, with trousers falling down and with custard pies, but it's it's not. It's about story and emotional depth and richness. Um, so it which is, but also it's what people expect. It's in the Almeida Theatre in Islington. It's in Corbyn's constituency, <laughs> and everyone buys the Guardian. So if they come here and you just give them what they want, it's just uh, there's no fizz in the room. Mm -hmm. But to watch them, as you actually you don't know this because you're backstage. Um, but to watch, uh, it was always my dark desire and the director's desire to have people walk out in the interval. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so I don't mean that, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> well, I know, to, uh, to go to the bar in the interval <laughs> and be uh, racked with sudden guardian guilt that they actually quite like with Murdoch and they wanted to succeed. But if I, if I thought if I could briefly achieve that and then of course I think in the second act we hold him more to account and the, the consequences of his beliefs and you know there might be people here who know our, our Murdoch fans and that's totally fine as well because I, what I think is also important is that you don't just want people to come who agree with you, you want uh, otherwise nothing changes and it's just a room of people sat there going oh, yes my, my prejudice has been confirmed then, uh, then theatre really is pointless and dead so I do want I do want, very cynically, the Daily Mail to give an OK review and the Sun to give an OK review, and they did. And so what you have, therefore, is people who read those papers come and having a conversation with you in the work, which for me is much more important than, than a badge of honour that got all the, all the news international players to hate us. There's no mm -hmm. satisfaction mm -hmm. for me in that. Yeah, and sell more tickets. It's, I mean, <laughs> that's a bonus, but it's not. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about, um, I mean, 
the um, what's the play? Ink. We're doing ink. Uh, <laughs> ink uh, started at the Armida and then moved into town, which is the Armida at the moment is becoming this big sort of funnel for West End plays. Um, that's quite a traditional way of doing things, as is uh, putting a play on a re in a regional theatre or a French theatre and then it coming into town. Uh, but Labour of Love has gone straight in, straight in at the West End, which is um, fantastic for the West End and for new writing and plays. Um, so I just wanted you all kind of uh, take on the state of the West End and new writing at the moment. I think it's in a great uh, place, and obviously there is a theatre ecology beyond the West End. Um, including to Bridge, um, mm. and from where I'm going from. But, it, but for whatever reason, better or worse, there is an epicenter where, generally speaking, most um, writers gather and give their work, and then hopefully you hope it goes out from there. So, yes, there, it goes in cycles, but there are frequent. I remember seven years ago there was a dearth of new plays in the West End, um, and people bemoaned it, and uh, thanks to a lot of support from various different producers. Uh, that's changing. Um, so yes, so as a producer, the first rule of producing theatre is you do not open a play straight into the West End. <laughs> There's only been a couple um, this decade, and uh, less than, I think less than eight since the turn of the century. Um, probably less than that actually. Uh, so we, so that was my commission, that was the challenge that the producer, uh, Michael Grandage, who is a director and He's currently directing Frozen on Broadway, so um, I think it'll be fine for the future. <laughs> but it's still a, it's still a financial Wait, Frozen risk. Frozen the musical? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking for 20 minutes and that's what's Sorry, cool. sorry. <laughs> so he, so he, uh, but it, yeah, it's still a risk uh, to do a, a commercial play about the Labour Party, but that was the, that was the proposition to me. You do a piece of political theatre that says something about the world, but that can gather a mainstream audience. and and that being its DNA. So I said, sure, I'll try it. And then uh, that took a few years. Um, and the Labour Party kept changing, which is <laughs> it's want to do. Uh, but we, uh, we we committed to uh, putting it straight into the Noel Carroll Theatre this autumn. Um, and yes, are we the first, I think we're the first place to do that. Uh, Heisenberg pretended this, but that had a Broadway okay. first. So we are the first in uh, many years. Um, and it was all going brilliantly. We had a cast. Um, I'd written the play and finished the play. And then two things happened. Um, Theresa May called an election. Um, and no one ever thinks about the playwrights when that happens. <laughs> really annoying. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, and the Labour Party did best than people thought. They went up and took it right down. And that was not the narrative that had been happening. Um, well, actually, because the Labour Party had not gained seats. Uh, since 97, yeah. their literal seats so had been going down, um, and there had been no swing of that scale of the Labour Party since 1945. So, uh, so the uh, the questions the play was asking were fundamentally different about the nature of the Labour Party. Brutally, I'd expect the play to be um, an autopsy of a party that was collapsing. Mm. Regardless of what I think about the direction of travel, that felt like what the was going the play was going to be. Uh, so Corbyn ruined that, um, <laughs> and I had to shift it, and, it, but it, and that was really hard because it wasn't like changing the end, it wasn't like changing the last bit, or certain lines, it was, it was in, you, you sort of, when you start to play, you, you ask all these questions, I like, imagine it's like building a skyscraper, and you lay, lay all these foundations, and you build this huge thing, and you're just about to put the flag at the top, and something changes, and you can't just change the top floors, you have to go all the way down to the foundations again, without the thing coming down. 
it's a very pretentious way I would describe it. <laughs> so I had to um, go away and, and, and really microcosmically alter it. Um, the second thing that happened was that we had cast Sarah Lancashire in the, in the part, who was obviously a gorgeous, wonderful national treasure, um, but unfortunately she couldn't do it due to illness two weeks into the rehearsal. Um, so I'd already, uh, that weekend, I'd let it go. By Sunday night, I decided it wasn't going to happen, and I'd emotionally let it go. Um, because you cannot open a, a commercial play like that in the West End without the guarantee of uh, filling 900 seats uh, a night, eight times a week. Um, you can't do it. So they went away to try and find someone who could do that. And it sounds very cynical, but you need, I, you want people to come and see your work, and, and they will do that mainly often through the actors. Um, uh, so we found someone, we were very lucky, the Monday morning, Tamsin Greg turned up in the, um, in the rehearsal room and she agreed to do it and she is so gorgeous in the play that the reviews are so good that I think people are coming and we're now selling out, so that was a relief, but um, whatever your question was, that's, yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten as well. <laughs> um, the Theatre College in the West End yeah. is in great shape, we do more plays than they've been for um, a generation. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think with Labour of Love, you had everything thrown at you to make it not work. Um, but I actually couldn't think of a better last-minute replacement than Tamsin Craig. She's almost yeah. like, I mean, she's she's sort of, I mean, it's sort of a miracle that she was available and, and, and ready to do it as well. Just... Do you know what? She was at Centre Parks. <laughs> I think that's what must be why it's in my head. But she was in the centre park with a kid and she said, I'm not reading this in the centre park. But she um, she read it in her, in her cabin or whatever and she came she came home. Um, yeah, that's very lucky. I ruined her holiday, but I'm sure she's going to pay quite well. Um, but yeah, no, I think. Um, I think, uh, would you say it's, it's fair to say that that is an example of how. Um, you know, sometimes in this industry, stars just have to really align for you to, to, to for, you know, because it's, it's a hard industry and things, um, yeah, a lot of things don't want to work in your direction, but... Yeah, I mean, it's always easier to not do plays than do them, and it's always easier to fail than to succeed. Um, and what's, and I'm not taking any personal credit for this, but what's exciting, I think, at the moment is there, are, there is a body of work of new writing in the, in the West End and around the country that is um, politically motivated, that's socially engaged, uh, given what's happening in the world, I guess there's almost no excuse not to be, but, but it's, it's not, um, and actually I love farces, I think Lord's Love is one of the greatest plays I've ever written, but it's not running around chasing girls, it's, uh, it's asking big questions about who we are and where we're going and what, what we can maybe do as a, as a people to improve things. Uh, whilst being entertaining and theatrical and, and getting an audience. So I think we're in really good shape at the moment. Mm. I want to talk about a couple of uh, projects you've got coming up. So uh, Quiz, yep. uh, which is about the uh, infamous uh, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire cheaters, or did they cheat, um, opens in Chichester. In two weeks, yeah. Um, that's quite a departure from um, media moguls or political figures. Uh, what drew you to that? Because it didn't feel like a departure, actually. It felt like uh, one of the things uh, to channel my inner David Hare. You, you, you wanted to pick off, you wanted to start ticking off all the institutions, and, and weirdly, uh, who wants to be a millionaire uh, was an institution in this country, and uh, obviously that represents uh, media and entertainment. Um, uh, but then there's also the court, the judiciary, and uh, what I discovered, 
by reading a book that was just about to get published by a journalist um, from The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's a guy called Bob Wolfenden, who's a great journalist. He uh, has now, since uh, I started, published a book which examines, um, do you remember what we're talking about? The coffee major who, yeah. actually, what's weird about that is that he never coughed once, but he's the coffee major. He's uh, uh, someone that accomplices yes. cough. Accomplices cough. I don't know, guilty. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, that was in 2001, if you can believe that, 16 years ago. Um, and it was, uh, even though it represents probably quite a, a, a silly little trial um, of reasonably mockable figures um, in what feels like a reasonably stupid crime. I think, obviously, it represents something uh, fundamentally, a shift um, in how our institutions present truth. Oh God, this game of percentage for Sunday night. But basically, it was, it, it, what people forget is that he, um, he, was, he went on Who Must Be Millionaire on the 10th of July, 2001. Um, and the day after that, the, the plane took Twin Towers. Um, so the his news story got cancelled because of that. Um, and without, without either offensively or crudely um, making comparisons with that event and the other one, I think what happened uh, in 2001 with the Hutton Inquiry and the David Kelly suicide and the way that governments can sex up a dossier or that newspapers can turn on people, citizens, and, and drag them before the stocks, um, represented, represented the beginning of a shift, which we're now dealing with um, quite a lot in autumn, whether it's how many people go to an inauguration, or was it 350 million, or was it not, on the side of the bus, it's something, I know, I know media outlets and politicians have always lied. But it's this Adam Curtis-like thing of what is this lying and this truth that is, is when the realities merge and national narratives merge and you don't ever know really what reality you're living in anymore. I say all that like it's really grand. I mean, Chris Tarrant is a character in the play, so it's not <laughs> hugely grand. But, uh, but I enjoyed the challenge or the prospect, I guess, of doing a play about people who cheated on a game show to use that to ask questions about objective truth, right or wrong. Is there, is there, can you get the right answer and the wrong answer anymore when you're talking about inauguration crowds or uh, how much it costs to be in the EU? Mm. And you have written a piece for Hull. I have not, but it's, it opens in two months. So, so you haven't written it? No, not okay. worth it. Great. That was always the plan. It's going to explore the city of culture, and we are, which has been transformative. We talk a lot about London, but it's been so transformative. This city of culture in Hull. I was there this morning, um, and it's changed that city um, in all the ways that art you hope can, not just creatively, but in terms of well-being, literal health, statistics, physiologically, the health of citizens change. It's amazing. Um, so we thought it would be fun. Um, to at the end of every city, well, there's only, there's only the second UK city of culture, um, and they're going to announce the next one this year. Um, they have to account for how successful it was to the Department of Culture, Media, and Sport and to the Arts Council. So I was working with them, um, I spent all my time up there this year meeting the producers and knowing it, it began, I must say, by, by the producers saying, Do you want to write a play for us to end the year? And I said, Yes, but can it be about you? Can I take the piss out of you? And they said, Yeah. 
So in, a, in like a W1A 2012, <laughs> uh, they said, yeah, come in. And so they let me like go into all their secret meetings so that I can satirise them at the end of the year, uh, including the city council and all the different uh, partners and bodies. So that's what it's meant to be. But what, I, what really excited me, being a geek, was that I met these, um, this, um, the data analytics team in the, in, in the organised office, and their job is, is audience measurement, how you measure the impact of a, of a work of art, whether it's um, a show at Ultra Theatre, or, um, or one of the things that people really loved was they, um, they put a blade, like a turbine blade, in the middle of the square, uh, which, which was made by Siemens, which is a factory coming to Hull, not necessarily because of it being the city culture. And they tried to measure how well the blade was changing people's lives, how many people was, were looking at it. <laughs> you walk into farm foods and you stop and you do that, and then you carry on. Is that engagement? Um, so little things, so they will put cameras, and if you like look at it, they can recognise where your eyes are looking in the square. And if you look at it for a, more, a second, if you smile a bit, then that's the end of the day. <laughs> so, uh, but all the way, like how you measure art and the usefulness of culture, and they are, I found so brilliantly um, bureaucratic, and how you smash the words of science and maths with art. Um, and you, you go to these meetings where Burnley, Labour, all city councils go, so you know that, you know that valley thing that came up here? What, and they try and desperately try and say, how, how much has that benefited our city? And so someone produces a pie chart of well-being, and, and everyone's looking at it really hard. <laughs> potential comedy there, but also hopefully something really moving about loads of people trying to desperately understand does culture make a difference? Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, I think it does. Um, but that's going to be the fast. Mm -hmm. Well, um, data and analytics is is quite an uh, interest of yours because in privacy. Uh, there were whole sections of the show where you actually asked the audience to get their uh, phones out and uh, go through some processes that would show us how much companies like Google and Apple uh, store information about us and use it. Um, and I've been quite glib about this in the past, and you've actually got quite angry with me about um, about being glib about it because I sort of say I don't mind them having my data because it means they can furnish me with sort of great. Uh, adverts and stuff, um, but I mean, tell us more about that. Was it on privacy that you yeah, sort of entered this world? It completely radicalised me in that one particular area. Um, you know, George Orwell's first, and I'm second. <laughs> <laughs> to continue that stupid joke, but there are. Um, <laughs> yes, I I think it's the biggest crisis facing all of us. I know no one, no one else believes that, and that's totally fine. And I, I'm not a chocolate I, I think that technology, generally speaking, can only improve our lives and our well-being and, um, and our societies but they are we are I spend so much time in, in Silicon Valley with people in Google and Facebook um, and academics and psychologists actually and sociologists um, and we are in this, a really uh, unforgivable wild west period where it would, it would, it would be the equivalent, the equivalent of you invent the car um, and put cars on the road and eventually someone says, you know what, we just we should really paint a white that line down the middle because <laughs> this is insane. Um, and maybe put seatbelts in this. It's, it's, but no one's doing that. In a way, it's not the security and the civil liberties angles that really worries me because I know there's always going to be a balance and we'll constantly recalibrate that. What worries me is, for example, I went to Facebook in Silicon Valley and uh, worked with actually Mark Zuckerberg's sister, Randy Zuckerberg, who is this brilliant, um, she's, she's the marketing director. Uh, we talked her through some stuff we'd found that she didn't really um, um, just uh, go against, which was some Cambridge scientists had discovered four years ago 
that if you um, you can use your Facebook profile to work out things such as your religion, your sexuality, um, your emotional state, uh, your mental health. So, for example, now, and then I'll stop talking about this, I know it's really boring, but uh, loss of privacy on one level, we still think of it as being, um, uh, you, kn you know what book I bought from Amazon, and that feels weird. It goes beyond that um, to, it's not just, for example, when you, uh, if, I, if you were a gay 14-year-old and you came out to your parents, that they would know that. It's that, that it is, I swear to God, it's now possible it's been proven to about an 80% um, hit rate that through your Facebook likes, the Facebook algorithm can learn your sexuality before you even know it, and it's getting younger and younger to about uh, 12, 11, 10. So that's the breach of privacy where they know you before you know. Um, again, does it matter? It does with political parties. So Ted Cruz's presidential campaign were the first people to use this. So you might think that you are not afraid of immigration um, or that you are not scared of ISIS but you're the uh, thousands and thousands of data points, including where you are, what you read, the questions you ask Google at night, the way you type, the speed you type at um, when you're anxious. Uh, they know, that, for example, that maybe you are a bit afraid of it, and so they will tailor the political ads to you. And Ted Cruz had like thousands of variants on the same political ad, where they would change the color, the music, the, and you would get your individual political ad. Um, I think that is beyond terrifying. And some people might argue that that's just what people have always been doing for years. I'm a political party, I want to try and convince you that my government is the best, so I'm going to poll you and try and come up with a way of selling to you. But when, when you don't realise that that's what they're doing, and when it is possible, possibly, that they know you better than you know yourself. Not they, there's no, there's no person reading it, it's just the algorithm, it's just the software. And no one built it to do this. It wasn't meant to do this. Mark Zuckerberg is just as scared about this as anyone. We did this play in New York, um, and Daniel Radcliffe played like a weird version of me, um, <laughs> which my mum was thrilled about. Um, but he played a writer character going meet, and meeting all these people. Um, and Eric Schmidt, who is the CEO of Google, came and watched it and sort of said, uh, it terrifies him. It really terrifies him. The, the um, AI, artificial intelligence, and how the software they built, they've not lost control of it, but it's started to learn at such an exponential rate they no longer know what it's learning about us. Um, is interesting. <laughs> Thank you for letting me rant about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of the best rants you've got. <laughs> it, it kills any party I'm at. Let's go now, I'll show you. Really <laughs> well, uh, let's uh, not kill the party. Let's um, open up... Uh, uh, to questions from the floor. Um, we've covered a lot, but if anybody has any questions um, they'd like to pose to James, please, uh, yeah, raise your hand. Yeah. Yes. Could you talk about Larry Lamb in the memes? I don't know how many people yeah. have already seen it, but I was very lucky, I saw it last week. Sure. And I thought the play, although everyone was talking about it being about murder, but actually I do have a friend who said she felt uneasy because she felt like she was jeering from that top. She's very good. But when I saw it, I thought the character of Larry Lambert was in. When you said about learning from history, I felt like he was trying to recreate history. He was trying to get back to being a newspaper man, and he didn't know he was getting away from it. But I thought it was interesting the, the way you talked about it. Sure. Well, thank you for letting me see it. And um, yeah. I should also mention that on that list of Wikipedia entries, that there's a play which was produced, which was uh, called Hook, and there's a missing entry there, so you can. Ooh. That's not your fault, that's Wikipedia's fault. Wikipedia's fault. Yeah, so Ink, uh, I enjoyed the idea, I suppose, that if you're going to do a play about the Sun's formation in 1969, that Murdoch wouldn't be the main protagonist, he would be the antagonist. 
um, and that uh, you would actually see it through the prism of someone who goes on a much bigger journey. So the main character in Inc, um, starring Jack Holden, running until January the 26th. Um, uh, it's, it's really a guy called Larry Lamb, played by a great actor called Richard Coyle. Um, he wouldn't he would recognise some great TV drama. He, um, Larry Lamb was a, an, an editor who felt like he should one day edit the Mirror. He'd been snubbed and he'd been sent up to Manchester to do the Northern Editor of the Daily Mail. He has a scar on his forehead for reasons which we don't reveal at the end of the play, but there's myths that go around Fleet Street about where this scar came from. And he's this really brutal, smoking northerner. So he, he's, he's, he feels like he's in Sopranos or something, and he, um, he's been outcast from the Fleet Street world, and Murdoch is looking for um, an editor for The New Sun. Uh, the Sun was bought from the Daily Mirror in 1969. It used to be a very high-class quality broadsheet newspaper. Um, and they were selling it, and Murdoch wanted to buy it and do something different with it. And he found Larry Lamb, um, who was feeling bruised and angry, and in the same way that Murdoch was feeling bruised and angry. It's hard to imagine now, but at the time, Murdoch possibly self-styled, but saw himself as an outsider. Um, he couldn't get into the establishment. The, the press barons that run Fleet Street were these old dynasties, families, Beaverbrook um, and beyond, and he couldn't find his way through, and everyone mocked him. They mocked him all through his Oxford University days for being the Australian sheep farmer. Um, and he was angry. The fact that he came from huge privilege and money and wealth is something he leaves out of that story. But he was, he was angry and he found someone else who was angry and they decided to change things almost. Uh, Heath Ledger style in, in Batman, they wanted to burn it down and start again. And Fleet Street at the time, as you all probably know, was an um, entirely self-contained world of uh, every newspaper house was there. And the unions were, were geographically based there, and that, that's where they got their power from as well. Um, so he, um, uh, so Larry Lamb just felt like the more interesting character in the way because Murdoch stays relatively consistent in his in his ideology of introducing free market ideas into into news and it not being a, a play thing for rich people, um, competition and sales figures and all these sacrilegious things at the time. And he found in Larry Lamb a, a populist who wanted to reach as many people as possible. So I, the, I, I hope the um, I hope the moral journey of the play is that at the very at the very beginning of it, you recognise at its heart the, the the value of that project, which was that um, there were sections of the country that felt like they were being ignored, including where Larry Lamb came from, a Yorkshire mining town, where they were uh, sick of being lectured and preached to by a very narrow political establishment. Um, so they set about a project of giving people what they want. Um, which started off quite well, uh, but then of course the natural end point of that is that we're all flawed and we're all weak and sometimes what we want isn't what's best for us or anyone else. Um, so in the course of one year, uh, remarkably, it just covers one year of the first life of the Sun newspaper as they fought to beat the mirror to become the biggest selling paper in the world. Um, it ends with the first page to go on the exact anniversary of the I've ruined it, haven't I, if you come and see it. It's history, so it exists, not spoilers, but uh, on the anniversary of uh, that deadline that Murdoch gave Larry Lamb, sort of, uh, to beat the mirror, um, he came up with this idea of the page to ego, and they found a girl, so I, I met the original girl, um, they're still alive, and uh, that then evolved into something else, and things started to change. I think uh, it's obvious if you see or read the play, that it's kind of got this Faustian element to it. And in that world, Larry Lamb is very much a Faust character. And yeah. 
that makes Rupert Murdoch the devil. <laughs> 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 it does. Uh, except what, what, I, what, is, uh, what was always fun to me was um, all my metaphors to Star Wars recently, which may alienate some of you, but in the prequels, the terrible prequels to Star Wars, the joy is that you know eventually that someone's, that the kid's going to become Darth Vader. Um, the joy with Murdoch is that um, you think he already is Darth Vader when you meet him in the play, um, but then Murdoch goes on these huge moral wobbles, and then I think that's true to real life. Something happened, which I won't spoil, um, but uh, a, a shocking personal event happened to Rupert Murdoch in the first three weeks of the newspaper's um, existence, and it involves death and blood and he, and a threat to his and his family's life, and the cost of life actually in his in his family. Um, and he was faced with this dilemma of whether or not this new newspaper, which should report on anything and not be irreverent, um, reverential to the, to the uh, to society, should report on it. And he, in real life, he really struggled with that because he created this beast, and then. Um, something happened to him and the beast went, you've got to apply this same system to you. Um, and he struggled with that. And I think in that brief flicker, I think an audience can feel good empathy for him. And it's Larry Lamb who, having learnt from his master, is going like, no, 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 we're going to do this. And something horrible happens as a result of that. And um, you leave the play having, I hope, been surprised at what you were actually watching all along was not... Murdoch teach Larry Lamb to be him, but actually it was Larry Lamb that taught Murdoch how to be Murdoch. And as he, as he walks out the play, uh, you feel like you've just seen him, but he's, he's gone. Um, and that's, I think, with a few little tweets, that's just history. It's that's an origin story. It's an origin story. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Yes. Um, any other questions? Yes. When you first started talking, you were talking about liking being in your quiet room and not speaking to lots of people for days and that sort of thing. And I'm interested in novels and playwriting, and that's what a novelist does as well. Of course. And that's what a playwright does. So what made you decide that you have, because if good novels, I would argue, do that, telling people what to think or not what to think, or lead them down pathways and make them react and not react, in the sort of same way that plays do, except plays, it seems to me, um, involve working with people to put your ideas across and somehow kind of platting your story. And, and I just wondered what made you make the decision not to, to leave your awful short stories, I'm sure you'll find them, your short stories in your little room and everything, and decide to go into the theatre and be a much more kind of collaborative person. I think, um, yeah, I think that's a good question. And I don't necessarily, I'm not conscious of the, the time I made that decision, except the first time I did it, I felt um, uh, really safe in a room of people collaborating with me, as opposed to, you know, in some way, I think I would almost feel more unsafe or unsure if I was on my own and in my own head because you never get challenged. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the process of ink um, was an extreme version of that, and bless Jack and the rest of the company for doing it. But um, I always, you always make, whenever you go to the first day of a read of a new play in a rehearsal room and you meet all your actors, and in Ink's case, there's 14, 13, um, and it's people you know and recognise in um, Revere, and they've said their yes to your play, and you've got the director and the creative team there. And my thing, I'm aware of doing that, you walk around first day, go, hello, hello, hello. And I always find myself saying, oh God, this first day is the worst, isn't it? So nervous, I feel so exposed and vulnerable. But actually, secretly, I'm often quite excited. I'm really excited to hear the work. Um, so that came back to bite me in the arse with ink because <laughs> I felt, uh, that first reading, I felt so exposed, um, particularly in the second act, because it didn't feel like it uh, was working. Um, and it's the worst feeling in the world to, um, to spend like a year and a half or something and, and, and walk confidently up to a table and go, guys, you're going to spend the rest of, the rest of 2017 with me and we're going to do this play. And I, I'm sure no one had to know that. I would be interested to know what you think, but I, I felt throughout the course of the play I started to really go grey and I just felt each individual moment was, I thought, fine. Um, but for some reason it wasn't pulling together as a, as, as a great sum of its parts. And I'd fallen horrifically into the trap I always tried to stop myself falling into, which was just assuming that putting lots of exciting events one after the other would be fine. But it was just episodic and it didn't amount to anything, mm. it didn't say anything. Um, and I, I, I felt uh, embarrassed, I felt uh, apologetic, and I remember, so I basically left the, I left the room for about a week. I think that was, I feel like I remember you leaving the read through with a lot of notes, yeah. and you left with sort of your head hanging, and I think we all felt quite bad about that, because all we'd done was sort of read your play, and then the director had said, <laughs> the director had said, um, give us sort of three things you like and three things you don't like. And the three things we liked were like, that's a funny line, that's a cool character, we like that bit. And the three things we didn't like were like, where's the structure of the yeah. second story? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Uh, why are we doing this play? Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, um, you know, And also you have to do that. I mean, there's nothing, you, there's nothing you did wrong because you, you have to sit there and you have to take that because 
it was the things that I was feeling anyway. But you have to. I just don't. I just don't know. I wouldn't change it for a second because I don't know any other way to work. Um, and I imagine if you're writing a novel, it's already published on the shelves, and then you find out what people think. Why wouldn't you adapt and change um, constantly? So that was the most furious rewriting process I've ever, ever been on. It never stopped all the way through to the first preview yeah. and then beyond. Um, so with theatre, you get normally like a week, if you're lucky, six, seven previews before the critics come in. And on preview three, pre preview four, I was still bringing you pages at, at 12 o'clock that they would have to learn and put in that night. And uh, your, your opportunity is shrinking. And it's terrifying for you guys because you never get to, um, you never get to nail it down. You never get to feel safe and settle it start doing your job so there's a point when you just have to let it go so that you can do your job um, but I don't I wouldn't change it it's if you can if you can tolerate how um, if you tolerate all the things that don't matter how it makes you feel about yourself <laughs> and just go how can I use this to make the best piece of art possible then then, then it should be great how was it for you <laughs> um, really fun um, yeah I mean uh, it's the second proper new play I worked on. The other was a play called Oppenheimer. It was about J. Robert Oppenheimer, who invented the atomic bomb. So it was they're kind of similar sort of stories in a way, you know, like yeah. these kind of genius, troubled geniuses making something bigger than they ever imagined that yeah. um, caused mass obliteration. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so I was sort of steeled for it. And my part was it's relatively small in the grand scheme of things, and uh, I actually think I, I got a net gain over the rewrites. I think you gave me more lines, um, so I was really happy. Until, this is an interesting anecdote. Uh, the, I played the first page three photographer, uh, who was a guy called Beverly Goodaway, if you can believe it. Um, and he, um, he's now deceased, but his, one of his daughters came to watch in one of the early shows, and uh, I was told she was watching, and uh, so after the show, I bound out of the out of my dressing room to meet her, expecting her to be full of praise. <laughs> she looked distraught, and um, she was just like, she said, "Daddy wasn't like that at all. <laughs> he didn't have long hair, so we we're very long wig. He didn't smoke. He didn't speak like that." And he never would have danced like you danced. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I realised that they were sort of expecting a different thing. They were expecting a lifelike representation of their father on stage, but that's not really the point of it, is it? I mean, no, that's actually, that's never happened. So that never happened to you before, but that never happened to me before. Um, and that's really hard for you. I remember feeling a huge responsibility towards you. And I think we both said that's really hard for them. We both sort of acknowledge that God, that must be so weird and strange to go and see someone you love on stage and not be the same thing. Having said that, then two days later, the other sister came. Yeah. Um, and I don't know it's because I was sat next to her, but she had been <laughs> doing that, like staring at me. She, she had a great time, and she yeah. saw um, she saw what the language of the of the style was, which is quite clearly not an, a naturalistic presentation. Mm. It's a th theatrical representation. Um, but it's, of course, an ideal, ideal mostly in, in real people. Um, so I have to negotiate that all the time with quiz, the people who um, are, are accused of cheating Charles and Diana when they came to the rehearsal room this week. And it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. But you, you of course, forget that they're scared, more scared. It's like spiders. They're scared of you than you are of yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I take that responsibility very seriously. You definitely don't go out of your way to misrepresent anyone, even, dare I say, Rupert Murdoch. I've got your responsibility to him. 
to not uh, falsely represent his views from my own political agenda. Uh, any more questions? Yes, sir. So, rural Nottinghamshire. Yes. To trendy Ken uh, Kennington. How's it changed your views in relation to what you're going to produce in the future? Ooh, um, I hope. I hope I've still got one foot in the Nottinghamshire village. That's. Um, and in fact, Labour of Love um, is a play based and set in my hometown in Nottinghamshire. Um, and it gives me a, a weird thrill to hear those village names mentioned in, on the Western stage, one that's unpronounceable. But I actually come from a place called Nunkergate, which uh, Tamsin Greg and Martin Freeman did not believe was a real place. That's <laughs> <laughs> just a noise. But no, Nunkergate is where I'm from. Um, and, uh, and my family came down, and I, I know how. I know, uh, how thrilled they were to, especially, um, this sounds overly political, but uh, a lot of those towns, communities felt very ignored and voiceless um, during some of our recent history. Uh, and I think to give, a, to give them a voice in the West End is, is important to me. Um, uh, so now, I mean, my family is still based there, my friends are still there. Um, so I can absolutely, I think, go to the milk shop and see George Osborne buying his eggs. Um, in Kennington. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in Nashville, no. Actually, no, George Osborne I've never seen. Um, Ken Clark gets his milk from um, and go home. And I, but it's, you know, I think it's, a, it's um, something I'm actually conscious of because, of course, you find yourself sucked into a... I've got two... I, I, you know, I feel embarrassed almost saying that I come from a working-class background because, obviously, I've got two plays on the same ethnic street in the West End <laughs> and I don't pretend I'm working class now but, um, but you know, my family still work in warehouses and, and I, it's very important to me I feel very lucky actually none of that I'm so lucky that, um, that I had that experience because I know it forms my plays and my family which I'm probably not conscious of uh, Yes uh, To what extent have you moved in political circles to help this characterisation plot? To, to contradict exactly what I just said, all the time, I, 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 I love moving in political circles because, um, uh, because I think you have to. And I, I was again just incredibly fortunate that the play I did at the National Theatre in 2012 called This House, for whatever reason, a lot of political guys came to see it, and they all came across the river. So I was, I, I would, I met Harry Harmon, I met George Osborne, I met Nick Clegg, and they all came. And I was, I was a bit of a tart. I just, whenever I met them, I made sure I got their contact details. <laughs> and then would email them the day after. And because I want to, um, I, I just, uh, there, was, there was an opportunity there to, to, to access something which I think is so hard to access. So I, I wouldn't have been able to write, I, a few years later I did a Channel 4 drama uh, called Coalition, which was about the negotiations between the Lib Dems and the Tories to make a government. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't have access to the people um, because originally it was maybe a work of imagination. Exactly, yes. Um, uh, so, so this house, because no one knew who I was when I wrote that, um, that was really hard because that was about the world of the whips and parliamentary whips have a code of secrecy. Um, so for those of you who don't know what whips are, they're the guys and girls who, um, they're, they're members of parliament, but their job is to work in the House of Commons to get uh, their party members through the house and vote the way that the leadership wants to vote. And normally that's fine in a majority, but in a home parliament like we have now, it's very dramatic because it's very hard. Um, they have a code of secrecy where they don't do any interviews, they don't go on television, they don't publish any memoirs. The first person to publish a Wicks memoir was um, Giles Brandwin. Um, and he, the day of publication, he got a card through the post with a little black spot on it. <laughs> <laughs> and 
whips and they, they were slightly you out, you don't. Um, so when I knocked on their door, I said, can you talk to me? They went, no. Um, and it took a long, long time to get them to trust me. Um, I don't know how, except I think if you generally go in with the best of intentions, they can sort of sense that. Um, so eventually I got the, um, the 90s and whips to start talking to me and we probably found all these new stories of things that happened during that time. Um, Honestly, writing a letter is the most amazing thing you can do. It's people, people just assume that people won't talk to you. So I just, I just put Nick Clegg, House of Commons, and put it in the post box, and you'd be surprised how often people come back to you. Yes? You mentioned Shadow and your inner hair. Who are your inspirational players? Um, well, uh, well, he, I mean, I, I am very aware I'm following in a, a tradition that he. Um, he made very popular and successful. I would say, I, 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 I Alan Bennett, because I saw him in your book earlier. Yeah. He, um, you know, people like that who can't, who have never believed that you can't um, write northern working class voices without incredible intelligence, but also great humour um, has always been important. Um, Michael Frayne, uh, Carol Churchill. Um, and people, people writing now, I, don't, I think it's impossible to go and watch a play. I'm seeing three new shows, new, three new plays next week, and they will all absorb into me. That's my excuse for stealing everything. <laughs> <laughs> they all affect you, I think. Yes. What have you talked about the beginning of your career and how you got your first play noticed and actually got stage? So I, I did a drama degree and then left university and Weirdly, that doesn't help you to be a writer because no one cares about qualifications when you're an artist. So I, I worked for about a year and a half on the stage door at the Theatre Royal in Nottingham, which was great because I got to see different shows coming through as they toured from the West End. Um, I just started writing and I, I made huge mistakes at first. I just, I just assumed that because I was 20 years old and I was writing dialogue, that I must be a genius. And all I had to do was churn out a few pages, put in an envelope, send it to the West Yorkshire Playhouse, and wait for the invite to open night, and strangely it never happened. So I just, um, I calmed down a little bit. I spent four to six months on one single play, just made that my absolute passion project, and that was Albert's Boy. Um, researched it diligently, didn't send off the first draft, did four, five, six, seven drafts, um, and sent, then was really uh, targeted about who I sent it to, so I didn't send it away, but picked theatres, producers, who uh, have, a, have a history of that kind of work. And um, that was the first time someone called me back, um, the first day they sent it to. So, and that was the Fibber Theatre in London. And then you, you, have to do, you have to be smart about learning about the theatre ecology, learning what theatres do, what kind of work. Uh, most regional theatres have a new writing department, and then most of them have Arts Council funding that subsidises the reading of plays, and that they sat there waiting for that. It's furiously competitive in London. I would say that the National Theatre gets over a thousand plays a year. Um, Less so actually in local theatres, and that's I think that's a great place to start. And then you put you have to put a play on, and it's a it's a catch twenty two because often theatres won't put you on without an agent, but you can't get an agent without putting your play on. Mm -hmm. So things like the Edinburgh Festival are great to find amateur producers or young producers who want to put on your work. Fringe theatre, unfunded theatre, it shouldn't happen, but it does, and I needed it. Um, and eventually you start to put a profile, and I got an agent and. Uh, but ultimately, you have to keep writing, obviously, and you have to go and watch plays and read plays and be aware of what other people are doing. 
Yes. Um, sort of more about labour of love. Um, when you've kind of written a piece of theatre about politics and so kind of unashamedly about one party or kind of one side of the yeah. story, um, how do you do you kind of put anything into the process to kind of ensure that it's not kind of feeding into a you know the echo chamber sort of thing? Because we you know, we saw it last night and there was a sense of kind of there being quite a labour audience really? where we were in the balcony back and right back. <laughs> but, but there was, you know, like the minute Margaret Thatcher's image came on the screen, people properly hissed, being shouted out. There was this real sense of it being an, an audience, a certain side of the audience with a political meaning. And okay. Do you kind of put that into your process of writing at all? No, you I just wouldn't. Have to I wouldn't. Go with it. I, I generally don't want that reaction. Yeah. Um, I can't control it. No, no. Um, but I, 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 yeah, it's, that's, I, but that's been happening a lot. I've noticed that yeah. myself. Um, I guess the problem I acknowledged and never said is, of course, that we all know that um, art and, and, and people who experience art, particularly theatre audience, can traditionally come from quite a narrow base uh, politically. I think it's less than people think. Um, with Labour of Love, I guess it's tricky because, it, as, you, as you identify, it's about one party, one part of the movement. So you may attract more people who are Labour supporters than the Conservative or anyone else. Um, and they will have a, a visceral reaction to that kind of thing. Um, so uh, I guess I hope with Labour of Love, and thank you for going to see it. Um, and Martin was off last night, wasn't he? He was, yeah. So yeah. sorry. No, the understudy was amazing. Great. He such a good job. Understudies should be, there should be a day where we celebrate. <laughs> Just, <understudies>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's, um, that's extraordinary. Yeah. He did that. Um, yeah, uh, Martin hurt his leg doing the dance. I mean, I have to say he was really oh. struck down by illness, but now he just twisted his leg. So he's going to be fine. And he's, uh, gosh, what Martin actually went through uh, in that cast change, he's, he's an extraordinary actor. Sort of one another, I think it's brilliant. Um, it's, um, I think you accept that people are going to come with prejudice, they're going to come with baggage, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, the joy of theatre, unlike almost any other medium, I think, is that it gives you the space and time and context to really absorb complicated ideas and, 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 and walk in the shoes of people you disagree with. I think that more than anything else, I think it's a mix of being forced to physically sit in a community of people that, and, and for the actors to be live in front of you. It makes you um, more open-minded and more tolerant to dissenting views. And that's always the case, whether you, if you're a 12-year-old kid and you're shouting each other on Facebook because you can't see their face, you see them in the playground the next day and something innate takes over where you become a better person and you listen to them and they listen to you. And I think that's theatre's ultimate power. And it's not just the liveness of the actors that you're physically next to each other. Um, so you have a responsibility in a play like that to... Uh, to, to, to um, Yes, have the Margaret Thatcher moment where people throw vegetables, but then hopefully three minutes later you found a, a quality of conversation that is more nuanced. And, and I felt the responsibility of that. Um, and I, I hope you, I hope an audience leaves, and I hope you all get to come and see it. Um, an audience leaves with more questions and answers about their own political bias. I hope. But um, yes, yeah, tough. It is tough. Mm -hmm. I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Anybody has? Yes, sir. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in more about how you research. Um, is it all conversations you're reading? And, and when you are researching, what are you looking for? Do you know what you're looking for? Is it? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, actually, because I think research, I love the research part of it, especially because um, 
often it's periods I wasn't born for. Um, you have to trust on, 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 your, on your sources. So the meeting people face-to-face -face is always the best thing. I love reading books, I love reading the memoirs and the biographies, but to go and meet people um, is a different quality of conversation. Um, I, I have a rule in my head that I won't ever go and try to get them to tell me the thing that I need to hear to make my play work. <laughs> I will ask them the questions and if they tell me that it makes no absolute sense what my hypothesis is, then I have to change it. And that just makes it relaxing, you just relax. I don't, you don't go to the sun offices and if people don't tell you this thing then there's no play. Um, you just go and listen. And I, I, I really believe that people can sniff it out. People smell <clears throat> in the quality of what you're asking, that you're not trying to trap them and you're not coming in with an agenda, that you're genuinely coming in really curiously. Now, it's the only way I won the whips around. Um, the whips, often because they, they were labor people in the 1970s, so they were pretty tough. They lot of them come to the trade unions, and one, one guy was called Walter Harrison, and he's the main character, really, in this house. He was um, a legendary whip in the 1970s. Tony Blair said he was the only man he was ever afraid of. And I went up to his house. Well, actually, I didn't. I was so scared of him. Um, that uh, I put off talking to him and then I lost control of the narrative because they got released that he was a character in the play um, and he called me on my phone and he uh, had a proper go at me um, so while half of him was going oh god I feel terrible half of him was going I'm getting whipped by one <laughs> <laughs> like whip and I was so sort of thrilled um, so I went up to his house in Wakefield and um, and, uh, and it took 10-15 minutes for him to trust me um, but I knew, I knew my intentions were so honest and pure that eventually he did and he started getting out all his photos and he died um, three weeks later so I just very very quickly got stories that this is not I'm not giving myself credit but the stories that might have been lost because of it um, so I think it's, it's about your intention and your intent but yes meeting people is so much better than anything else it must be hard not to be swayed uh, by what these people give you. And, I mean, for example, you met Stephanie Rahn, who was the first topless page three uh, model. Yeah. And she had some crazy stories that could have made it into the into ink. Yeah. But was it possibly completely derailed the story you were trying to tell? Yeah, but I don't think that's any different from when you're making stuff up. I think you, you need to know what your central narrative is, and then it's the Noel Coward thing that you have to kill your babies. Uh, you need to work out what your play's about, and anything that doesn't add to that central question, um, you have to discard, even if it's the best scene in the play, and it's the funniest, most moving scene in the play. Uh, so the Arthur Miller rule is that Arthur Miller would, on the top of his typewriter, uh, write a sentence with a but in the middle. So Romeo and, Juliet, Romeo and Juliet love each other, but I don't even know what that sentence would be, but their families are at war and they can't be together. Um, ideally, it's um, thematic as well, so it speaks to a wider question you want to ask about humanity. Um, uh, and anything that deviates from that central question, even if it's really funny, look at the question and go, that's not the question. So it doesn't matter what, I mean, if she, if she told me the question's wrong that I'm asking, I'd have changed the question. Um, but you have to protect yourself a bit. Um, but no, you also have to protect yourself by being seduced. I, will, I, I like people too much. And if people sit me down and give me a cup of tea, they're really nice to me. <laughs> so, that, I, so I haven't met Rupert Murdoch yet. I've met the people around him and the people who were there at the time. But I'm glad because I bet I would have gone there and I bet I walked out like, in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same with George Osborne when he, he helped me. He, um, I, in the te television drama, he invited me to Downing Street and I walked in a bit. 
And as I left, I was like the George Bankler. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was just nice to me. Um, so yes, I, that's probably a very specific problem with me, not playwriting. Um, maybe it's time for a last question. Yes. So you wrote this, yes. but after writing something else, would you ever, well, you said how much you had to change. Oh, yeah. yeah. So would you ever publish? Previous the original, because I, I quite like the idea that you were putting forward in that of the that uh, was going on. As an experiment, maybe, as an academic experiment for, for the writers to see how a play, made, how a play works, but only as literature, never as theatre. I'd never let someone else do the early drafts um, on stage because, because we moved away from that for good reasons, I think. I went on a very lovely, brilliant journey with the play at the Old Vic a couple of years ago. Uh, Tennessee Williams, the play um, Sweet Bird of Youth, has a, a, a multitude of different versions, more than any other play, because they were actually performed. You would put them on at different venues and they'd be performed and then they'd change them. But they, they exist in print. So I went to, I'm going to go to a library in Texas and covering, uncovering all of, these, all of these drafts to come up with a super version of this play, <laughs> which I don't think I achieved. And it's brilliant as well because he, it was all his, 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 his um, typewriting and he had whiskey on it and that could smell. <laughs> and stuff. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, so as an experiment for, for a student, yes, but I would never let anyone perform the first draft of it because... But not even perform it, just publish it. I mean, you do have, you do have a very different version of it here to the one we performed, actually. Well, that's also true because eventually <laughs> someone has to press print so that they can sell them in the show. Ultimately, though, this will get... This is why it's a, it's a classic copy that you can keep and sell for tens of pounds. <laughs> um, ultimately, the, the, the version that starts being printed will be the one that we did. So for only a very short period of time, that exists. Um, and maybe just one last bonus question. <laughs> yes, you. Um, you've talked quite a lot, but you know, obviously about all the you know real life events, real life people that you've dramatised from you know recent, the very recent history with like coalition and, and things like that. I was just um, wondering, is any particular recent political event that you be very divisive, perhaps? Sure. So <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? It's such a piece of Yes, I'm doing. I am going to do. I'm currently. Actually, I've just finished it. Um, I'm doing a TV drama about the um, the referendum campaign. Yes. Um, I know, right? <laughs> uh, we've just got a director on board. Um, it's going to be a, a, an American-British co-production, so it's going to be quite big. Project, I think it's based on two very brilliant um, memoirs books that were published about the campaign and it just focuses on I, I, had, a, I had a panic uh, when I was writing it early, early this year that I just couldn't keep up because yeah. people kept triggering, <laughs> triggering articles and things like that um, so eventually I just calmed down and stopped decided it would just be those six weeks of that campaign um, and we have the inside view of those campaigns and they, I, it's, it's extraordinary and again my hope doesn't matter whether you'll leave or remain um, obviously it would be preposterous to, to project, I think, a, a viewpoint on that to a, a popular TV audience. But it looks at how it looks at the battle between them. It was a very personal battle. Um, it was a, such a strange amount of sabotage that they did. It was quite childish as well as um, important. So it's about those six weeks, and that will start shooting, I think, in January. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we, there's a lot to expect from you, James. Um, we're all waiting hungrily for the next piece of political drama, or just human drama. Um, and uh, for now, I think we'll take a, 
drink break so we can all refuel. And then if you've got a play, uh, you can sure. sign it and you. you can have some photos and whatever, all that kind of fandom <laughs> stuff. Right? Okay, but, uh, everybody, thank you so much, James. James Graham in conversation with Jack Holden so my thanks to both of them uh, for that uh, way back in 2017 but um, thank you also to you for listening to this and I hope it was uh, interesting and fun thank you to the old fire station in Tunbridge for hosting it and uh, thanks also to Mr Books Bookshop who's effectively the kind of sponsor for this I suppose um, but there'll be more ideas in writing as we upload more as we get uh, get more recordings uh, done uh, with writers and uh, interesting people so uh, do look out for it it'll be on the mr books website at mrbooks.co.uk and uh, here on uh, whatever website or platform you found this so thanks again and see you next time All of my most sensitive areas were in flames, my extremities pulsating with tingling sensations. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an ACAST supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much.